0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a
1: conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempenar. And I'm Josh Larson. I'd be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. Yes, we see what you're doing, American fiction. That's best actor nominee Jeffrey Wright with John Ortiz in the Best Picture contender, currently playing in wide release. A little Oscars catch up this week with reviews of
0: American fiction and Rustin about civil rights leader Bayard Rustin. That one stars another best actor nominee, Coleman Domingo. That and more ahead on
1: Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Josh, I suppose one of the benefits of the Oscar nominations and the award ceremony beyond giving idiots like us fodder for show content is that it does expose these movies to audiences that otherwise may have missed them or overlooked them completely. For sure.
0: Yeah. Especially some of these smaller or more difficult titles that did get nods this year.
1: Yeah. Poor Things is number six at the box office. That's in wide release. American Fiction, number seven, also out wide now. Zone of Interest. Number 15, that's in limited release, but it's expanding to more screens this weekend. And then you look at big titles like Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon, Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, all back in theaters, giving audiences a chance to see them for the first time or maybe revisit them. This week here on Film Spotting, we're doing some Oscars catch-up ourselves. We'll get to some talk about Rustin later in the show, Coleman Domingo, is nominated for best actor for that biopic it's currently playing on netflix
0: but first let's get to a film that received five oscar nominations last week american fiction directed by cord jefferson now along with a nomination for best picture it also got nods for best adapted screenplay score and lead actor and supporting actor jeffrey wright and somehow this is wright's first nomination plays thelonious monk ellison an unhappily obscure writer of literary fiction and disgruntled professor who's reunited with his estranged sister, played by Tracy Ellis Ross, and his brother, that's supporting actor nominee, Sterling K. Brown, when their mother requires treatment for dementia. Their mother, played by Leslie Uggams. Now, this is also a satire, because while Monk is dealing with all of this personal stuff, he goes on to write a quote-unquote black book, that is meant by him as an ironic protest against a publishing industry that rewards novels full of caricatures of black life the result titled my pathology which he submits under a pseudonym earns a major payday and becomes a bestseller here's right with his agent played by john ortiz in a conversation with a publisher played by miriam shore
1: hello hello paula
0: Arthur! So wonderful to hear from you. Um, I hope that you are with the man of the hour.
1: I am indeed. He's right here next to me.
0: Mr. Lee? Uh,
1: yeah, this is he. Oh, really? Uh, uh, yeah, (laughs) goddammit.
0: Right, Right. okay. Um, yeah, I was a little confused at first, but...
1: (laughs) We're both very excited to discuss Thompson-Watt's offer. Yes,
0: well, first of all, let me just say that all of us here at Thompson Watt are thrilled with my pathology. It is about as perfect a
1: book as I have seen in a
0: long, long while.
1: Just just raw and, and real.
0: And Mr. Lee, is this, um, is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that shit? No, 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 I don't. So, Adam, I feel like there have been three different versions of American fiction. The first one was the movie that was sold to me in the trailer, which I saw months ago and was comprised mostly of moments like the one we just heard. These broad jokes about racial stereotypes in art and entertainment struck me as something of a toothless follow-up to the likes of Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle or Spike Lee's woefully underrated Bamboozled. Then there's the second version, which is the movie I actually watched and was surprised to find, oh, there is also a quiet, nuanced family drama here involving Monk, his siblings, and his mother. Then there's the third version, which we got just a few weeks ago, The Oscar Hopeful, a movie that, you know, may not be the front runner to take the Best Picture Award, but I think is a serious contender in a number of other categories. So I'm curious, Adam, what movie did you see? What is American fiction now that we've caught up with it to you? Is it that comedy that I saw in that trailer? Is it this family drama? Is it the Oscar wannabe? Or maybe all of these elements worked seamlessly for you, so much so that you think it's deserving of that Best Picture nod.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I would call it seamless. It is a film that I enjoyed more. I liked it the first time. I enjoyed it a little more, Josh, the second time, and I felt compelled to watch it a second time here as we're reviewing it because I think I have done the math correctly. I watched this over six weeks ago. I remember watching it for the first time back before we did our show where we highlighted our favorite performances of the year and we submitted our Chicago Film Critics Association ballot. So I really did want to revisit it. And I didn't see a different movie. I didn't see yet a fourth movie, mm-hmm. Josh. but But I did see one that maybe leaned more a certain way, though I still think the thing maybe that's holding it back from being great, is the inadequate way it fully balances the humor and the satire and the family drama element. Actually, that scene we played is a good microcosm for it, I think, in a way where I actually really love some of the humor of Wright's performance acting like a quote-unquote thug character that he and his publisher or his agent think that publisher wants to hear or needs to hear as validation for the author they think they're getting the book they want to be publishing. And then not that there's anything wrong with the performance by Miriam Shore, but that goes a little broader, to use your word. And often when the movie is being more blatantly satirical, I feel like it crosses over into that broad territory that's less effective than some of the more subtle humor. Watching it a second time, though, I did really have this feeling, Josh, that the satire element, the satire of the publishing industry and of Hollywood, too, is somehow both central to the story and a complete red herring. <laughs> the movie really is more fundamentally about. It's, it's weighted way more in favor of this family drama. And what I came to, I think, appreciate a little bit more was the way it explores something a supporting character in the film says at one point. It's actually the... The man who their longtime cook in the house comes to marry. I think he's the one who says something like, it's always easier dealing with other people's families than your own. <laughs> that, I think, is really what this movie is fully about. But, but more than that, more than just being about family and that, that reality, the difficulty often of family, it's really about identity. And it's the fact that you've got a case where only your family members really know the true you, even if you're trying to hide it from them. And so that's where, for me, it does connect to the satire in that it's it's almost less about taking shots at any industries. And it's more about this question of what roles do you play in society? What role do you play as a black man, as a as a black writer. There's a a nice little moment again, didn't catch us the first time I saw it where that, that same cook, that, that woman who lives in the house, we need to look up her name, Josh, to make sure we're giving her credit. She is leaving the house and Wright's character says something to her. I think he hands her an apron and says, Hey, do you want this one? And she says, you know, I never even liked that one. I never liked that color. It's just (laughs) the one your father bought. So it, it is about This movie really is about this question of of fitting a certain role, playing the role that is expected from you. And again, that's for me where I think it does connect to this larger satirical bent that the movie has. So I'm still a little bit mixed on the movie, Josh. But the second time around, that balance, or I should say that pointed imbalance, resonated with me a little bit more. And the fact is, the jokes that really do work in this film – Worked even better the second time. Mm. So there there are elements to the comedy here in humor that I'm still laughing about, thinking about, having watched it earlier this morning. And- Ultimately, I'm coming out positive on American Fiction. What about you?
0: Yeah, I'm definitely positive, uh, but but the jokes work <laughs> because you you know I think because you see him coming a mile away. <laughs> that was Often. part of my that was part of my issue with it. Uh, I did I did just look this up, and it's Myra Lucretia Taylor Thank who you. plays Lorraine, the uh, the family cook, and yeah, she is she's wonderful, just this kind of rooted. Reasonable presence amidst this family that's somewhat spiraling out of control and has, has that perspective you talk about where your family knows you best yet. She's a step away from the family. And so has Mm -hmm. an additional perspective of honesty, I think. So that's, yeah, she's a great supporting character and a nice performance there. I, you know, clearly from what I've already said, I value this mostly as a family drama, I would not go so far to say that I wish they had excised, though, the satirical elements. I think for me, it's a matter of tone. Mm-hmm. The way you describe the uh, the publisher you know, and, and the tone that that performance is in is absolutely right. It's when we get to that heightened level, especially in contrast with the family dynamics that we're getting. There, there There's a little bit of a jarring, you know, butting up against each other there. And actually, the movie has a scene where I mm-hmm. thought, oh, see, this is where... It's doing both, or at least it's working in the same register as the family stuff, yet giving us some really smart stuff about black identity within American entertainment. And Monk gets asked to be on this literary award committee with four, I think, or five other authors. They basically have to determine the book of the year. And so they meet occasionally and have these conversations. And one of the other authors on this committee is a novelist, an acclaimed novelist played by Issa Rae. As a matter of fact, we see an earlier scene where she is reading from her book. Monk is watching her at a conference. And she does a reading, and it seems to have all of these stereotypes that he finds disgusting, uh, and that he then goes and puts in his book, right? Later on in the movie, Issa Rae shows up again, and the two of them just have this conversation over lunch. And that was—Sintara Golden is, is the novelist she plays. That was probably the most provocative mm-hmm. moment in terms of satire that I thought the movie had, where he— calls her out a little bit on her book and she pushes back rightly on his accusations and talks about, you know, the way she's researched her book basically within a three to four minute conversation, they dug into so many complications Mm -hmm. about writing black stories as black authors. I am obviously on the sidelines here, like just, just trying to trying to like, you know, learn about this stuff and feeling like, Oh, that, That makes sense to me when he would say something, then she'd say something like, oh, wait, no, that may, and back and forth and back and forth. And it was not, it was not jokey. It was not um, broad. It was just very subtle, nuanced, sharp, biting. It didn't hold back. I think, I think what it was, this is what it was. That was the scene where I didn't know how I felt Mm -hmm. about the satire and all the other stuff that was in the trailer. I already knew what I felt and I felt, and and it was kind of like being served up to me. And it was like, yeah, that's, that's stupid. That's, and maybe this is why it got Academy attention, right? Is it's in some ways, this is not a piece of provocation like bamboozled was like Hollywood shuffle was, this is much more, we're all laughing at this because we agree about it for most of its running time. When the parts I really appreciated outside of the family drama were those things where even I felt poked as someone who reads fiction and and asking myself, you know, as as someone who who just, you know, read the color purple this mo that conversation made me ask, why did I appreciate what I did about the color purple uh, in a provocative way? I guess I just would have liked
1: more of that in the film. Hmm. I'm glad you called out that scene because I'm with you. I also had that in my notes as a real standout of the film doing very different things. I don't know if for me, it's quite the scene of the movie because I still think the most fun scene in the movie is the one where he's writing His book, his ironic protest book. And in this case, we get Keith David as one of the two characters. He's envisioning this conversation between a dad and a son and some revelations and a whole lot of melodrama and emotion. But he envisions it, Cord Jefferson envisions it as the writer and director, as if monks sitting at the desk writing and these characters are in the room with him and they're actually interacting. And, and when he writes something, when he's put words in their mouth that feel false, they, they turn to him and actually say, no, that, that doesn't work. And I, I don't know if he's going for realism, obviously at all there, but I imagine that for a lot of writers, when they're in the process of imagining those types of scenes, that might actually be what it sort of feels like as if the characters are writing, themselves and that you're in dialogue with them. And it's a it's a fun scene. It's it's I think a smart scene as far as opening up some of these these questions about what does ultimately feel exploitative and what doesn't? If it didn't call attention to how over the top it is with emotion, would we as viewers actually be likely to succumb to it because these are actors giving real real performances in the moment but we're seeing it through the eyes of Jeffrey Wright's character who has disgust for what he's writing look at my face
0: look at my midnight
1: black complete. no that's not right huh? But what did you want to say you can say it better than that right come on what do you want think about it Van Gogh Look at my face. Look at my cold black skin and look at your own. Look at my black eyes and look at your own. I, I think that scene's really great, but Josh, I'm with you about the the scene there near the end between Issa Rae and Wright is really crucial to the film. In a lot of ways, the entire movie has actually been building to that, at least in terms of the satiric storyline. It's been building to finally a confrontation and perhaps a sort of reconciliation or a resolution around this central question about whether or not this is bad. This is bad writing about the black experience, whether or not she's exploiting this material and pandering to her audience in some way. It's been building to this. And what I love about that scene, I think you summed it up well, but I love that it contains all the complexity that it has to. Maybe she is doing some of the things wrong that Monk is suggesting. And I'm with you at at different times. I'm I'm on his side. And then at other times I'm I'm on her side. I think he gets to say everything he needs to say, that character needs to say, and and we consider all of it and some of its accuracy, but she also does expose something in him. She exposes yeah. a a pathology in him, actually, that I think is really important to the film and really important in the sense that it, it does undercut Wright's character just enough so that it isn't about just this screed yeah. and this kind of you know, talking down to or punching down to the people that he thinks are beneath him or perhaps Cord Jefferson could be perceived as thinking are beneath him. In fact, it really does want to have an honest dialogue about these questions.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's the beauty in Wright's performance too is he is more than willing to to reveal the, uh, I guess there's a selfishness that's underneath his professional self-righteousness and Wright is very willing to do that. And I think this comes out Honestly, I think he's funny in in some of the broader scenes, but I think his best moments are with the family members where Mm -hmm. that self-righteousness, as you said, they know him. So they peel it away and it's a vulnerable enough performance where Wright allows that to be seen. He doesn't try to cover that up because he wants to be the smarter than everyone hero here, right? He he knows Mm -hmm. this guy has a point to some degree, but he's also a flawed character and and Wright's willing to go there. I think across the board, performances are great. Uh, Sterling K. Brown, deserving of the nomination. I, yes. I don't think I had him. We, we may have covered this. I didn't have him on my final ballot, but I know I gave him a lot of consideration thinking about putting him on there. Tracy Ellis Ross in just a handful of scenes as the sister, so wonderful. And then Erica Alexander, just this lovely, warm, but also looking a scant presence at yeah, as Monk, his love interest, at his as his love interest who he meets later in the film. I
1: really enjoyed her performance and as real well. Quick, I should mention, Josh John Ortiz is a presence I always enjoy yeah, seeing on screen as well, and he works in those broader moments. I
0: think he, I think he has a register which is kind of right mm-hmm. in between. He's yes. he's somehow handling. The obvious gags, definitely enough where they feel natural and they feel like they're just kind of rolling off of him.
1: Yeah, I agree. And another element of this film or some other questions that it raised that I do enjoy thinking about, Josh, whether or not I have answers to them and I don't, but I still think they're, they're provocative. And the question, the central question about what does then make a quote unquote black book? There's a moment where he goes to a bookstore and he gets mad about the fact that all of his books are under African-American studies, Yeah, that they're not just under literature. And he says to the, the dorky guy who's trying to help him, something like, the blackest thing about that book is the ink, <laughs> the ink on the page. And, and that's a joke, but the fact that it's written by a black man, does that somehow then make it, by definition, a black book? Or does it have to deal with certain certain themes or ideas to encapsulate, quote unquote, the black experience or someone's perception of that experience, the market, the publishing industry's perception of the black experience. And another one would be, look, at the end of the day, even though it's it's funny, it's funny that you've got a room full of white people saying we should listen to black people. That's a punchline. We should listen to, to black voices. And then they completely ignore the black voices in the room. There are people in this movie who take his book. At face value and think it's great literature. And it does open up an interesting question, which is can art that's made as an ironic protest, can art that's made by someone who actually views it, views what they're creating as bad or as embodying all the things they despise in literature, well, can it still be can it still be great? And who ultimately gets to decide that? Yeah, it, it's kind of the ultimate kill the author argument, right? You're not right. only ignoring what they intended,
0: but you're actively choosing to, to appreciate it for the opposite reasons of their intent. Yeah, and yeah, so it's interesting when the movie gets into those areas. Can I ask you a a spoiler question about the ending, which isn't actually you know that detailed. It's mostly what did you think of the ending? But I think in order to get into
1: that, we'll probably have to spoil it. But this is a movie yeah. with a very interesting way to conclude. Can we pause it for a second in terms of talking about the ending just so I can say one or two more oh, things yeah. I liked? Let's do it. So so something else about this film that I do think is really clever in the writing and again where the, the two elements here that sometimes feel opposed in this movie where they really do come together and I think it gets back to this idea of not punching down too much in terms of the monk character it's how it shows the way he doesn't really see the connection or seems to not see the connection between his own life and And these depictions of black life that, as he puts it, flatten the black experience. So he's ridiculing the stuff that depicts. I think his phrase at one point is it's all deadbeat dads, rappers and crack. And the thing is, that's clearly quite intentional. We don't get any rapping that I recall. I I don't remember any rapping, but we sort of get the deadbeat dad. In terms of all the stories of the estranged father yeah, and how true. he he was he was sleeping around with other women and having affairs and they never really knew him and we don't get crack but we do get Sterling K Brown doing copious amounts of coke this again true. seems very intentional and there's even a scene again didn't notice this the first time but noticed it today Josh where we're thinking about deadbeat dads and and he 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 mentions you know it's all depictions of poverty. Basically, well, there's a scene where this family gets their lights turned off because nobody paid the bill, <laughs> you know? So there's some fun, smart jokes, I think, along those lines, even though on the flip side, the movie also acknowledges that we're not in the milieu of those types of stories. Yeah, in, and, in other and ways, it's purposefully is, very yes, far purposefully. from Yes, purposefully. And so so here's another one that actually cracked me up today that that went completely by me the first time. When he meets... Coraline the love interest she's dropped some groceries some tomatoes in the road like in her driveway and he he bends down to to pick them up and he says something like oh it's it's tomato season it'd be a crime around here to let them go to waste and it's like they're at their beach house they're at their beach house where the crime is if the tomatoes go to waste right that that's the environment that that they're in so i i, I did love I did love that line and then I do just have to say a couple of other lines that I love. My two maybe favorite moments in the movie. This is where the humor, I just want to emphasize that the humor did ultimately work for me and it's a bit where Wright is talking to Tracy Ellis Ross, she announces reveals to him that their father had affairs and says says uh I caught him one time. I caught him one time kissing a white woman and Wright says how white. <laughs> Which is brilliant. And then the scene, another kind of over the top (laughs) broad moment, but the scene where he's talking to Adam Brody's screenwriter, film producer who makes Mm -hmm. this kind of Oscar Beatty material about, you know, telling important black stories. (laughs) He mentions his upcoming film. Oh, this is good. And he says, he says that it takes place on a plantation. A couple is getting married. A white couple is getting married on a plantation. He says, all the ghost slaves come back and murder everyone. And Wright's response is he goes, Oh dear God. And and just the the delivery. And most of the humor in this movie is as dry as Wright's demeanor. The way he delivers that line, you can absolutely see how Brody's character could think maybe he's responding to the brilliance. Oh, dear God, that's brilliant. When of course we really know that it's, Oh dear God with complete contempt. I will say I did laugh
0: as broad as it is at the title of that project that Brody is planning plantation, <laughs> plantation annihilation, annihilation, which we see, which we see later on on the back of his, of, of a director's chair when there's a scene on set. So, yeah. So yeah, that one, that one got me.
1: Okay. The ending. Yeah. The ending is, so we're going to spoil it. You haven't seen American fiction yet then maybe you don't want to listen to this part. Though, I I think, did we decide ultimately with spoilers we were going to save those for for the end of the show? Maybe we should do that, Josh. How about we do that? We can try We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it at the very end. We'll have to not forget. (laughs) As long as we we don't forget. American Fiction is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net.
0: Would you like to help the show out? I know you'd like to help the show out. There are some easy ways to do that. If you're a regular listener, or even if you're still getting to know us, take a minute, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Doesn't seem like much, but
1: every new rating or review will help us reach some new listeners. Another way to support us, join the Film Spotting family. We would like to welcome a new member. I got to get more of these Q&As sent out, Josh, a reminder to me here. Welcome to new family member Jerry in Seattle. He's been listening all the way back to August 2007, episode 175. Wow. And how does he remember this detail? He says this. In 2017 or so, I did this experiment. I started from episode one and listened until I hit an episode I remembered. Something in episode 175 made me say, I heard this one before. I continued listening to all archived episodes in order, along with each new weekly episode until now. I just hit March 2020 in the archives and decided to stop. It is too soon to relive the pandemic. So what to do now? I'm with him. Start over, of course, and I have a new project in mind. Whenever Sam, Maddie, Josh, or Adam raves about a film I have not seen, I plan on watching that film before going on to the next episode. Well, maybe not every film Josh raves about. What? Kidding kidding he says josh i'll send an update every 25 episodes or so to let you know what i've watched thanks for the archives and all the films i have already seen on your recommendations and thank you you know jerry for the for the dig it josh i i appreciate that
0: yeah it's okay jerry i, I forgive you not everyone can be as adventurous and open-minded as me i i understand
1: you'll get there That's, someday yeah Totally fair. Jerry isn't on Letterboxd, but he did send his four favorites. And here, you know he's Team Adam because he actually has eight films. (laughs) He's got – but you'll love this. You can't argue with a pairing of Jacques Demy's Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and Young Girls of Rochefort. That's fantastic. I certainly – yeah, I can't argue with Lynch's Mulholland Drive and Blue Velvet, coming-of-age films, Boyhood and Moonlight, and beautifully tragic love stories in The Mood for Love and Portrait of Lady on Fire. Great taste, and it gets even better for Jerry. The movie he credits with making him a cinephile – is in my top 10 as far as films that made me a cinephile. John Sayles, Lone Star. Jerry, welcome, even though you sound like a wannabe Adam. (laughs) In addition to keeping us doing what we're doing, your support comes with some perks. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get Sam's weekly newsletter. You get our monthly bonus shows, available now. We shared our reactions, our immediate responses to the Oscar nominations. You also do get complete archive access. I don't I don't recommend you do what Jerry did, but you could if you wanted to. Theoretically, (laughs) it's possible. It's possible. Filmspottingfamily.com Why would a man his apartment three times on a rainy night with a suitcase and come back three times. next way his wife welcomes him home. No, no, there's something terribly
0: wrong. I've seen bickering and family quarrels and mysterious trips at night, knives and saws and ropes, and now since last evening, not a sign of the wife.
1: <laughs> well, it's not every week here that we review your favorite film of all time, Josh, but it's coming. I can't wait. Is, is, it, my, is it my birthday? Not yet. Close, Not yet. but oh, I love this early present, early present from producer Sam and, and me I'll, I'll glom on to this gift. If I can, Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, of course, in rear window, it turns 70 this year, just like you, Josh. Yes. <laughs> and next week we're going to give Hitchcock's masterpiece, the sacred cow treatment. And, and just because Sam decided to give you a gift, but also torture you and make you do more work. Mm. It's not just a rear window, Sacred Cow. Oh, no, we're going to we're going to go with Vertigo as well. And we're going to answer the question once and for all, which one is truly Hitchcock's best film and ultimately which film might end up winning or should end up winning film spotting Mattis best of the 50s, which is right around the corner. Yeah, I, I think I actually brought that part of it. On myself by wondering aloud,
0: you know, uh, I think, I think I said like, I've never actually sat down and paired them against each other. And then Sam hearing a cruel cinematic experiment, potentially
1: at play (laughs) said, yes, that's what we should do. Yeah. That's what we're going to try to do. We have already voted in the current film spotting poll question. Get to that here in one second. So we know where your gut is, right? We know where my gut is, but. We're gonna sit down and try to be sober in our thoughts and consider both films and see which one actually does emerge as our favorite. Though, of course, you know, hopefully we'll actually get into some film criticism along the way and not just pick I mean, a winner. If Josh. we have to. <laughs> if we have to. So as I said, both Rear Window and Vertigo are in the mix for film spotting madness, best of the fifties. That's gonna kick off here later this month, later in February, leading into March. If you want more info about Film Spotting Madness, including the short list of titles, maybe you have some final homework you got to cram in, look at those titles that we're considering for the 64 film bracket. Do that at filmspotting.net slash madness. You can, though, make your pick for Hitchcock's best film of the 50s right now. I think we have at least four in Film Spotting Madness, and here here are your choices. Here are those four. Basically, Hitch made 11 films between 50 and 59 Four of them are commonly thought of as among the best of his career. You can pick only one, Josh. The options are
0: 1951, Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, 54 there, Vertigo 58, or 1959's North by Northwest. And because there
1: are those other films in the decade, we are going to offer you the option of other. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment. Maybe we'll consider your comment. To be heard, to be read by us on next week's show. We might need your help swaying us one way or another here. Really tough. Because as we noted, we like North by Northwest, but we also both really love Strangers on a Train. That's yeah, how good. It these deserves a place are. in this poll, for sure. Yeah, it does. Again, you can vote and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We did want to take a moment to note the closing of the 2024 Sundance Film Festival. It just ran January 18th through 28th. You know, Sundance, I've been there a few times. Josh, it used to be a film fest that coincided with a time of year when I could often get away for a few days, and now it absolutely does not because my semesters have always just begun and it's really not in the cards and probably won't be in the cards again for a very long time, if ever. Now, whether this year's fest will spawn an Oscar contender like the 23 Fest did with Past Lives remains to be seen, but we're going to guess that several Sundance titles will not only come to screens this year, some of them could end up being Golden Brick nominees are winner this past year. All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt premiered at last year's Sundance, as did a couple of finalists, Theater Camp and Rye Lane.
0: Looking at this year's fest, here are a couple of the prizes that were awarded. The U.S. Grand Jury Prize went to In the Summers, directed by Alessandra Lacaraza. This is about sisters navigating their loving but volatile father during yearly visits to his home. Lacaraza also won the fest's. U.S. Dramatic Directing Award. Now, the U.S. Dramatic Audience Award that in the past has gone to titles like CODA and Minari, it went to Didi from director Sean Wang. This is set in the last month of summer 2008 and follows a Taiwanese-American boy who learns how to skate, how to flirt, and how to love his mom. Didi also won a special jury prize for Best Ensemble. And then one more we want to note here is the U.S. Grand Jury Prize documentary winner. That was Porcelain War. This directed by Brendan Belomo and Slava Lyantyev. It's about three Ukrainian artists who choose to stay behind and fight
1: and to find beauty amid destruction. So before I get into three more titles here, I need you. I need you, Josh, to be empathetic with me and not judge me for my failure here. Uh Uh-oh. I need you to appreciate my ambition, even if it was completely misguided. I decided that even though I had a million things to do this weekend, including preparing for this show, I didn't want to miss out on participating in the Sundance Film Festival. I wasn't enamored with how many films I managed to see last year and you know there was a lot going on last year hopefully this year i'll have more time to see more movies a lot of transition in my life but i wasn't happy and i said you know what i'm gonna start now i'm gonna i'm gonna cram in some movies i like i take it i'm gonna take advantage of the sundance film festival 2024 online and i'm gonna watch some of these titles not all of them are available but i was paying attention to some of the buzz and i was trying to look at run times to see what i could actually fit in Porcelain War was a movie, a documentary that stood out to me that I ordered. Another one I ordered, Josh, was Daughters. And Daughters ended up being the winner of the Festival Favorite Award. It also won the Audience Award U.S. Documentary. It's about or focuses on four young girls who are preparing and and their fathers who are preparing for a daddy-daughter dance at a Washington, D.C. jail. Oh, yeah. Heard about this one. Yeah. And – That film, along with Porcelain War, here's where I need you to not judge me, Josh. If they were narratives, I probably wouldn't even mention that I did this, but because they're documentaries and I feel like I have a good handle on it, don't consider these reviews proper, obviously. You only have the weekend to watch them, and once you start, you only have a five-hour window. So, you know, if you start them, you're halfway through them, and then all of a sudden, life beckons, and you have other responsibilities, and you can't get back to it in time, you just miss out. And that's what happened for me with both Daughters and Porcelain War. Saw half of them, over half of them. Didn't get them finished. Ran out of time. Missed my window. So I can't, again, give them a review proper. I can say I found both of them to be very good, very, very sad movies in a lot of ways. Both also very hopeful movies. And in particular with Daughters, I I will say I just can't wait to finish it. Because I think the filmmakers do a pretty incredible job of taking material that is heart-wrenching in a lot of ways. You see the damage that this distance, the distance between these daughters and and their fathers who are incarcerated and the fact that they they honestly, in some cases, the daughters don't even remember them. It's been so long since they've seen them. A lot of jails, the movie tells us, have gotten rid of face-to-face or touch visits. So even if they do see each other, it's all through screens now. I don't know if that was a byproduct of, of covid plus just budget cuts or or maybe a bit of both. But there's a real disconnection here, as you can imagine. And the movie mines the material for the emotion it should without ever crossing into sentimentality or without ever suggesting that something like a daddy-daughter dance in and of itself is going to solve these real problems and some of these real cultural and real institutional issues that the movie is chronicling. So can't wait to see it again. I'll stress that, see the whole thing, but both Daughters in Porcelain War, it wasn't a surprise to me, Josh, why they won awards and are getting a lot of buzz. Now, I did manage to fit in two. I saw two films in their entirety
0: <laughs> from <laughs> I mean, Sundance I mean, this year. You know, your instinct on those previous two were, were
1: sounds like, pretty good. Execution, yes. maybe, maybe not so much. Exactly. I did fit in the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award winner, which went to Jesse Eisenberg for his screenplay. And he directed this film, and he co-stars in the film A Real Pain with Kieran Culkin. They play cousins, who've been a little bit estranged, but were very close, who travel to Poland after their grandmother's death. They want to see where they came from. They join a tour that goes to Holocaust sites. Apparently, Eisenberg did base a lot of this off of his own life, at least in terms of the the grandmother, the, the family history in Poland and the Holocaust. Kieran Culkin is really remarkable in this film as as I'm going to call him the title character Josh because the movie is one where the title has at least two meanings maybe three it's it's about this real pain this family legacy of pain it's also about this real pain that the movie explores between these two men these two cousins that that's there and and not insignificant But the Culkin character is also someone you could describe as a real pain, especially in the way he constantly rubs Eisenberg's character the wrong way. And Josh, the whole time I was watching it, all I could think of is if somehow the two of us were on a tour like this and had to spend almost all of our time traveling with Culkin's character, we wouldn't have made it more than a day. (laughs) We would not make it more than a day. The distance watching it on my couch and and, and appreciating – the nuances of Culkin's performance made it uh, a very watchable film. The one I will say, I'm still, I'm still kind of wrestling with the uh, the resolution of the film a little bit. I thought you were going to say, "How long would we make it if it was just the two of us on a trip?" Good so question. I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't put that out there. And, no, and change, no, I changed. think I think we could survive that just fine. I don't know if we could survive it with a character as high maintenance <laughs> as as Culkin's. <laughs> another film I watched is another documentary that. I do recommend, I look forward to people getting a chance to see this one. It won the Audience Award for World Cinema Doc and it went to a movie called Ebelin. I would have watched this even if I hadn't known about the award just because of who the director is. Benjamin Reed the Norwegian filmmaker who made The Painter and the Thief. The year that came out, 2020, oh, yeah. that was a Golden Brick nominee. Yep. We both gave it a very positive review. I think it made my top 10 of that year. And this is a movie about A young man named Matt Steen, a Norwegian gamer who has a degenerative muscular disease called Duchenne's, and he dies very young. He dies at 25, and what the film's really about is how he he has this, this very difficult life. It's one in which he becomes progressively weaker and weaker to the point where by the time he dies at 25, it's even difficult for him to game. Because he he can barely move his hands, and that's really kind of all that he can move. And he leaves behind his, his password and his email and everything that sort of unlocks this digital world that his parents are obviously aware of because he spends most of his days playing this game. And one game in particular, I think it's like World of Warcraft. Is that what the game's called? I believe I, it is. I believe it is. And he has a character, and the character he plays is this, this man named... Ebelin and his parents get to go into this digital world and they get to encounter all these people that apparently he had all these friends around the world, all part of this guild and they all, they all had a connection to him and they all were incredibly saddened by his passing. And, and they talk about many of them talk about the impact he had on them and really kind of what's remarkable about it is because of it being in this digital realm where all of these conversations that are having between role playing characters are cataloged and indexed and searchable and it all exists the the filmmakers are able to basically animate the movie they they're mm. able to bring these characters to life just like you're in the game and we're reliving "Quote unquote," actual conversations, right? Digital conversations, but conversations that he had with other characters, and the way these characters and these conversations intersect with their their own real lives, what they're kind of revealing about themselves while they're also inhabiting these characters. The movie really becomes almost an animated film because you don't have you don't have footage to cut to of these moments, but Reed doesn't need it because that wouldn't have made sense for it anyway here the form completely matches the content we get to see you know if he wants to to show a moment where a character in a traditional film would just be watching another character and feeling a certain way and we'd want to kind of know the interiority of that well he can produce that he can produce that digital moment with those characters and we come to really identify him as the character he identified as the title character evil
0: yeah, I got to see that. I, I, I'm becoming increasingly fascinated by, you know, the whole video game world and particularly this communal aspect you're talking mm-hmm. about being, you know, of a generation where I I could have, you know, been into gaming more than I was, but really was behind the explosion of gaming that uh, started and is is now at maybe its height. So this one sounds really great, especially having
1: the pedigree of uh, Benjamin Ree. Yeah, I will just say, I mean, maybe it will come out this year and we'll get to talk about it and we can dig into this a little bit more. But one of, I suppose, the revelations for me watching the film, and I try to think I'm fairly sensitive about this already. I'm not one of those parents who is just yelling about my kids being online, chronically online, like most kids are. I have a couple of gamers in my house. But if you are one of those parents if you're listening and you're one of those parents and this is understandable who maybe you lament that they're not more like you they're not out engaging in physical activity they don't have quote unquote real friends and you don't understand this digital realm at all and you wish that they spent less time in it and maybe you even try to impose limits and keep them off that that's all probably fine i'm not suggesting I know anything about any of your parenting abilities or the circumstances, but I will just say if you maybe lean towards one extreme and you're those parents who are just very hardcore about feeling that way and wanting to keep your kids off, this movie really should open your eyes. Yeah, It should open your eyes to the power of these spaces and that communal aspect that they build and that they genuinely authentically provide for people who otherwise don't feel like they're able to engage in those types of activities face to face or with people that they're around every day. Yeah. It's eye-opening in that way.
0: Yeah, and and this it sounds like this puts it in stark relief for this young man with this particular mm-hmm. situation, but it probably does apply
1: to gamers of all kinds that that yeah. appeal, that communal appeal. A link to more Sundance Award winners is available in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net. Quick note about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Right now, this week, they've
0: moved on to part two of their hunting games pairing. So, after previously looking at Elio Petri's The Tenth Victim, that from 1965. They're going to talk about it within the context of the new self-reliance, the Jake Johnson film that you can find on Hulu. That's the next picture show. You can get it every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right. The masses have been clamoring. Adam, (laughs) it's been far too long. Uh, uh It is time for the triumphant return of Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting prize. We took a little break over the holidays, Adam, but we're back and as inept as ever.
1: Yes, we are. Of course, we announced a winner on a previous show back in December, so we don't have a winner to share this time. We just have the scene, and I don't think we need to give you any hints, probably a pretty obvious connection to a topic we're discussing on this week's show. Whether well, the tattoo so simple. Would the de so Would the simple. Would the de so did why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well you say say it like I said. It? Okay, maybe a hint, but not really. We haven't decided what role Reach gonna play yet, and here's the facts. I will happily bequeath the main role here if you're willing to take on any kind of accent work whatsoever. <laughs> I don't have the energy and no one needs to hear it. So you know what role <laughs> I wanna play. <laughs> I mean, okay. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I think you could do it. I have faith in you. But, uh, um, you know, I would just do a high-pitched female voice.
0: <laughs> that's your accent. That's my it's accent, which, which wouldn't match. It's
1: your all-purpose accent for women characters and British characters. This is true. that's exactly right. <laughs> so let's let's skip that. Okay, and and we'll see what you do with the role here. So you're going to start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Okay, I. I I have an inspiration for this. Let me put it okay. in my mind. Love it. Let's see if we can determine. Okay, if we can suss out your inspiration. It, it may not be. I mean, it exi- could be the character. <laughs> it may not be
0: the. No, it's not going to be the character I'm supposed to oh, be. Oh, crazy I, thought! I know I can't do that, but okay. it will be someone I think could get me closer to that than if I tried to be that.
1: Are you? Are you? Are you I, happy to be in the mind of an actor now, Adam? I. I love it. I I really appreciate being in this space. I really hope you're going to try to do Michael Caine. No, definitely not. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's see where you're going. And
0: action. Cut from the DA to an upmarket suburban neighborhood. A couple have a fight. He leaves in a fit, gets in a car. It's the same rainy night. The car spins out on the road, goes into a ravine. The body is swept away. Now, when the police examine the car, they find the brakes have been tampered with. It's murder. And the DA decides to give her the big one. He's going to put the wife in the gas chamber.
1: But the DA falls in love with the wife.
0: But of course he falls in love with the wife. But he puts her in the gas chamber anyway. Then he finds that the husband is alive. He faked his death. The DA breaks into the prison, runs down death row, but he gets there too late. The gas pellets have been dropped. She's dead. I tell you, there's not a dry eye in the house. She's dead? She's dead. She's dead. Because that's the reality.
1: The innocent die. And, and scene. scene. I think it's maybe your best accent work ever. Oh, it worked. And, and here's my guess. Yeah. Are, are you going Hugh Grant? No, good guess. Okay, okay. My inspiration. Are going to tell us? Or yes. are we going to wait for emails? <laughs> Ooh, maybe we should. Josh's totally generic British guy accent. (laughs) Who was
0: it? Who was it? No, I'm going to tell you because I'll forget. Okay. Elizabeth Debicki's Princess Diana from
1: The Crown. Ah, see, I would not have sussed that out, as I have not seen The Crown, Mm. but big Elizabeth Debicki fan. So I like where you're going. I think she helped me. If you know what film we just masquered, email the movie's title and your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You have a couple weeks. Your deadline's Monday, February 12th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. I I was playing a man, by the way. We should (laughs) clarify that. I can handle all the work rally the young we are going to put together the largest peaceful protest made up of angelic troublemakers such as yourselves my friend dr martin luther king will be joining us how many bodies did it take to surround the white house That's Best Actor nominee Coleman Domingo as Bayard Rustin. In Netflix's Rustin, a biopic about the gay civil rights leader who helped organize the 1963 March on Washington, or if you've seen the movie, Helped, doesn't really do him justice. He basically was the ringleader. He organized the march. Josh Rustin premiered at the Telluride Film Festival last September. It arrived on Netflix in November, but a lot of people, including us, are just getting to it now because of... Domingo's Oscar nomination. And maybe that's where we should start talking a little bit about Domingo, an actor we've seen quite a bit of recently, and I think we could say is reliably great. He is Mr. in the new musical adaptation of The Color Purple. He's Cutler in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, directed like Rustin by George C. Wolfe, and then playing a very different character than the one he's playing here in the very good film Zola, where he plays a character named X. What did you think of him here in Rustin.
0: Yeah, let's start here because I think this may be where we have a a point of difference. I don't know. We haven't touched on this, but I wasn't entirely sold on Domingo's performance. And I agree with everything you said. He's one of those actors. When you see his name in a cast, I'm immediately excited. And from what I can recall, have only ever been impressed by what he's done. But there was something curious here. What I liked. Here's what I liked. He's playing Rustin as this this big presence, right? When he mm-hmm. comes into a room, especially with his friends, he's he's an entertainer as well mm-hmm. as a friend. Yet he's a man of he's a pacifist, and he has proved this. Like previously, we have seen in flashbacks in the civil rights movement, he he is a man who is going to protest, but nonviolently. And there's an interesting dynamic there, right? You have this big presence, but his philosophy is all about reducing that presence and not using it when the time comes. So I liked that. I liked how he inhabited that. But man, most of the stuff, most of his dialogue here is some sort of inspirational speech. And that's whether he's literally making a speech to the people working with him or in conversation with close friends or lovers in other cases. And the issue for me there was not particularly how he delivered those. All of them are stirring, and the words themselves are stirring, but they seem to come so quickly in the moment. It mm-hmm. was like it was like the scene started with him already speechifying, rather than arising organically from the scene at hand, or, or even building up to them. And maybe this isn't even a critique of performance. Maybe it's just more a matter of structure or or screenplay and so it's not fair to say you know it's it's something I didn't appreciate about the performance but this is a film we'll get to you know I did I would recommend I did like but if we're talking specifically about the performance it's one thing that kind of held me back okay i think
1: i can agree with everything you're saying except maybe we differ slightly in terms of how we ultimately rate his performance i do think that what you're expressing Is accurate in terms of this movie having a certain artificiality to it. That's the word I'm going to use. There may be a better word, but a certain artificiality or fakeness to it. Like when you're talking about things just seeming to come a little too easy like we're in a movie, you know, it's the way this,
0: when a newscast on TV is exactly what they need to hear for that scene.
1: Yeah. And then they turn the TV
0: off and don't even like let it finish.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that completely. I suppose where I differ is just in, I eventually did get on the same wavelength as Domingo. And I realized that, you know, this whole movie is pitched, it's pitched up a certain Way at a certain level, and I do think that he—I believed his character enough as that big personality. I believed his character enough as that orator, that intelligent figure. That I—I I suppose I didn't feel the fakeness as much when it came to him delivering those lines. Josh, mm-hmm. I—I I, did—I did believe his character, and and if you believe that character that that might be enough to get you through a lot of this movie. I I've talked about good dad folding laundry movies. I'm going to call this a prestige dad folding laundry movie. Like it's a breezy watch, under 110 minutes about an important topic spotlighting an important American historical figure who all admit I had never heard of. So I'm I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I learned something from the film. But, you know, I, I used the term breezy and a thought I kept coming back to throughout the film. And I had completely forgotten until I saw the credits that George Seawolf directed it. And then, of course, it clicked that that would all make sense. I thought, man, this feels like a musical. <laughs> Not hmm. that anyone bursts into song or it ever feels like they're going to burst into song, but just the pace of it. Especially at the beginning, the first 20, 30 minutes, there is a kinetic energy to the cutting, to the camera work, the cadence of the voices and the line deliveries. I I genuinely appreciate that Wolf takes that chance and doesn't take what is very serious, very important subject matter and make it overly serious or overly important to the point of solemnity. That is exactly the opposite of what he seems to be going for, and I think that's appropriate because it wouldn't have appropriately captured, at least based on this portrayal, that wouldn't have appropriately captured who Bayard Rustin was. Now, the downside of that is I often felt like I was watching sort of a parody of an important civil rights movie mm. with everyone just kind of putting on a show. I may have believed ultimately Domingo, but I didn't believe, just as one example, Chris Rock is Roy Wilkins. Who I think yeah. is maybe just miscast. Yes, and yes. and the, Let's say the that. characters, the characters who inhabit the office, organizing the march around him. Here goes back to your your point about the dialogue everyone is just so perfectly idealistic and eloquent uh, when i logged it on letterbox the the still image that you see from the film is one where he's in the middle of this group of people and i know i'm i'm bringing up a still image from letterbox but it just reminds me of watching the film and and just how kind of inauthentic it feels just not lived in something about the combination of lighting and the set design that makes that feel more like a stage. It feels like it's on a stage, and there's there's because of that, then, this this falseness to it. And then I'll, I'll shut up here and just say that, like, it breezes through other parts that really needed more time. Mm. The march itself. The march itself has a certain flimsiness to it. And I understand that there were probably a lot of barriers or things that made it difficult to capture that, but the whole film is building up to this, and it very clearly, a lot of it was was shot in front of green screens or blue screens by by necessity, but still you're, you're really aware of it. There's the use of archival footage at yeah, times that's, mixed, yeah. mixed with non-archival footage. And for me, I just, I never felt again, the whole film is building to this and it's this crucial moment in our country's history. And yet I never felt the awe of it. I, I certainly never felt the potency of King's speech in that moment either. So that, that was disappointing for me.
0: I think the use of archival footage really undercut what they were going for by emphasizing the artificiality. You can't go from newsreel footage of the actual march to then this film's, if it was indeed like a set on a soundstage where they're supposed to be at the march. Or even scenes that probably were set on the mall, you know, that they did get some location footage, but still cutting from... You know, archival footage to that doesn't quite work either. So, and it's interesting, your point about the musical, I can see that the one moment that comes to mind, which actually I actually think is a really nice moment is when Rustin brings in black New York City police officers because he has recruited them to be guardians. I believe mm-hmm. they're called to come yes. to the march and essentially to be protectors of the marchers. And make sure nothing gets out of hand, but he he has to almost retrain them. This is a very interesting moment in terms of recent years discussion on what it means, what policing should be, from being instigators or from accelerating disruption to downplaying it. And so they're in this office and there's maybe 20 officers. And Rustin brings in a guy to yell at them, like someone who's going to get really confrontational, and he's trying to train them how to surround this person peacefully without um, inflaming things. Anyway, the way that's staged is very much like a musical. You could see that with these officers kind of moving in unison. They're almost yeah, like a, a dance troupe, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, that makes sense that that struck you that way. And I do like that scene because it does a couple of things. It, it does show us and we get more glimpses of this, the astonishing logistics that went into something that I know mostly from MLK's speech, you know, and and seeing, you know, other historical footage that is in here, mm-hmm. but never really thought about things they talk about in this movie. I know. Like providing bathrooms. bathrooms. And, <laughs> yeah. and how like... Water. The, water. They initially, you know, planned for for tents and and to stay overnight. And, and all that stuff I kind of loved. And, and this goes back to this idea of you know i think i think as you were saying it it's a familiar you know historical drama i feel like i have been harsher on those in previous years than i am recently and i'm thinking some of something maybe like hidden figures let's say the nasa mm-hmm. set film because in recent years you know these any acknowledgement of of something like the march uh, which points to the march happened because of horrible american history right and that's the sort of american history that is getting banned in mm-hmm. recent years from like schools from libraries like from places of common education and maybe if this is going to keep happening we're going to need to we're going to need art to fill in the gaps and it may not be perfect art it may not be you know something as subtle or as nuanced as cinephiles would expect but At least it's telling the story. And I think in the case of Rustin, and again, it's drama. Not everything may be exactly as it happened. But as you said, you were unfamiliar with Rustin. I was too. And this is a perfectly accomplished way to learn about that story. So I think I've kind of become a little more Mm -hmm. appreciative of a movie like this, just given of the times
1: that we're in. Yeah, I feel similarly, and I think that's a really astute point. And I think there's another aspect to it, Josh, which is not only would this story potentially not be permissible in a lot of places these days, which is crazy to say, just because you're right, we can't get into anything that makes makes white people feel guilty about anything or exposes and explores parts of American history that are unsavory to think about, but Bayard Rustin's story in particular as a homosexual. Yes, yeah. That's another element of this film that makes it unsavory for the masses and for our children to know anything about, right? And so it's just another part that makes you appreciate the history lesson that this movie is giving us. Now, I think Wolf also plays it pretty safe when it comes to that part of this story. I don't know that we ever we ever really get that exploration of the of the feelings between men between the man that he's in love with and some of the contrivances of the jealousy in the storyline that we get with other characters it it for me never really came together cohesively in a way that i felt amplified what it should and what it what it did what it touched on Josh which is this idea i think of shame i think the movie wants to wants to show how when you're constantly oppressed and treated as less than by society, that that tremendous feeling of shame it can instill in you. And that's as both a black man being treated lesser than, but also a gay man being treated lesser than. And the movie wants to intersect with those things, and it does in a way that I, I think feels a little bit forced. But to my larger point, this is a story that would be overlooked because, well, we're not going to we're not going to tell the story of of a gay man who helped the civil rights movement and i'm like you grateful that we get it here yeah
0: i'm glad you brought this up um i, I think i felt similarly you know the, the overarching idea which which you've touched on and i and i think is is right is that rustin is facing these forces of racism from the outside, trying to undermine his planning of the march, but then from the inside, from, you know, colleagues in the civil rights movement, because he is a gay man, he, the march is being undermined for those reasons. So conceptually that should work together, but in execution, I think I'm with you. The way I experienced it is I felt we were continually toggling back and forth where now we're going to explore this thread and then it's like, okay, switch. Now we're going to explore his life as a gay man. And it's a little more subtle than that. They, they intertwine at, t- at times, but mostly I did come away feeling like maybe neither focus got its, its full due in a way that might have made the, mm-hmm. the film as a whole more rewarding.
1: Rustin is playing exclusively on Netflix. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, we would love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. There's already so much buzz because of the movie deal. Michael B. Jordan is circling. We want to put him on the cover in one of those um uh, scarves. I guess you would call them tied around his head. A do rag? Do rag. That's it. Do rag in a tank top with the muscles showing. Oh, something called <laughs> the fire department. <laughs> okay, one last bit of business here. Spoiler territory. If you have not seen American Fiction, then. You shouldn't listen. You had a question, Josh, about the ending. Yeah, basically just did you
0: like it? But we should probably set this up a reminder because I didn't rewatch the whole film like you did, but I did rewatch the ending because I had a few notes about it from my first visit with the film, but, but was kind of unclear as to actually what happened. But basically the climax is at this awards dinner for the book award of which Monk is on the committee and his book that he wrote under the pseudonym wins. And so someone comes up and says something about how, I don't think our author is going to be here because he's a wanted felon (laughs) or, you know, plays into the joke and Monk stands up, goes to the stage. We cut to a conversation Monk is having with Adam Brody's producer on the set of, what was it? Plantation Annihilation. (laughs) Yes, And they're talking about, well, how should this end? And we get A series of Monk says, well, how about this? And then a traumatization of what he's proposing. So I think we get three different endings and then an ending where Brody says, that's perfect. And we see Monk, you know, walking out to get in the car with his brother and drive away. So it gets really meta here. It's in this different space that, you know, I presented Mm -hmm. this as being in my experience of it, three different movies. That's almost, it almost is like the fourth one where now we're like in the player somehow. Yes, exactly. And, and I don't know, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. Despite my complaints about how broad this movie got, I kind of liked this at the end.
1: Okay. And, and I'm, I'm the opposite. Okay. I, I didn't go for it the first time. Didn't go for it the second time, and I think it's because it's the most obvious direct expression of the meta elements of the film of this satirical yeah it what kind of story. It. Yeah, it literalizes it. But since, especially the second time, the experience for me was so much about paying attention to the family drama and downplaying the satire. I almost had forgotten. Oh, yeah, this is how the movie ends, mm. and and those three endings. Again, I know you express this, but if I am summarizing them correctly, it's like what really happened is nothing happened, and that's not a that's not a dramatic ending. Right. Like in real life, he just got up and left. He left the dinner, <laughs> and that was it. He left yeah. the dinner, and his book won the award, and nothing happened. And he pitched, and then, but then he pitched Brody on writing a he screenplay about the basically the movie we just watched. Right, right, which in. Theory then would have that ending, right? And he says, No, that's not good enough. We need some different ending. He comes up with one then that I think Brody's character actually correctly (laughs) defines and dismisses as a romantic comedy ending. Yes. You know, where he shows up, whatever, he shows up with the wine, I think, at the door and tries to make amends to her. And we get the pullback shot in the neighborhood, and it's all very cheesy. He's right. And so then they go into bamboozled. Hollywood shuffle territory, right? With the the third ending, the Uh one that ultimately Brody says is great, (laughs) perfect. Which is, he's got a weapon, and the cops shoot him dead at the awards dinner. At the awards dinner on stage, and and it's just it's one of those jokes that I get and can appreciate (laughs) what it's saying, while also feeling like in the moment, the movie just hasn't really earned that that humorous jab for me at the end. It just hasn't. It's like, it just, it didn't have, it didn't have any bite to it. It, it, it felt, it felt out of sync, honestly, with the rest of the film to me. And that's because I think I was out of sync, Josh, with those elements that felt like bamboozled or Hollywood shuffle. Like the moments where it goes too broad, you know, there's an appearance where he, he appears, but he's in disguise and voice disguised on a television show. And it's that very heightened, like, like, joke of a TV show. None of it feels weird sure, or sure. or the moment you know I could laugh at it. But but the moment when we just see a commercial on TV where a TV network is is like honoring Black History Month and they're like honoring the diverse experiences of 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 black men and women or whatever it's like every movie image it's like precious and pookie from new jack city like they're all slaves or drug dealers it's it's everything that he he abhors that's what the tv station is identifying as the black experience but those commercials that is literally that's something that could be literally taken from literally taken from hollywood shuffle and the tone of the movie otherwise doesn't Match those few isolated moments. So for me, at the end, it felt it felt kind of tacked on and not funny.
0: Yeah, it, it's weird because I complained about all those elements. I, I think for me, I actually found the shooting thing pushing into bamboozled territory, where it's like it's actually starting to poke some people with that by having him shot done on the stage, where the other stuff was was a little more low hanging, broad comedy, but still low hanging fruit. So I think I like that, but but even so, it it didn't really depend so much on that particular joke as dark as it is it was more i liked it just because it kind of popped things open in a way in a movie that was was feeling a a little kind of cozy and safe and i do also like that we do have his brother sterling k brown at the Mm -hmm. end so that the family isn't completely cut out of it right and i think the point of it is that they get in the car together i do like the nod he gives to the the extra who's outside of the soundstage, clearly playing a slave in, in Annihilation Plantation, mm-hmm. and they kind of just look at each other. But then I would like that Sterling K. Brown is there. And it, it, there's there's a hint of this sort of, these two who their relationship has been very fraught are at least in a better place. Maybe he didn't mm-hmm. get the girl. That would have been terrible. Brody's right. Yeah. But, but the fact that he is in a better place with his brother mm-hmm. is kind of the closure, you know, both of us responded to the family dynamics sure. more yes. than anything else so i like that that was there as, as the grace note at the end of this this meta joke
1: yeah i i hesitate to bring this up because i'm going to say i don't ultimately think this is a fair criticism of the film or at least i'm not i'm not prepared to articulate this as a full-throated criticism of the film but watching it i know i've said this a lot but watching it the second time in light of the oscar nominations it got I had forgotten that it wasn't just an indictment of the publishing industry, but of Hollywood too. And that there's, there's direct talk of Oscar bait, you know, type material and about important topics on race, you know, and now we're talking about a film in American fiction that got five Oscar nominations. Yeah. And you wonder, you sort of wonder if you, if you don't think the satirical elements are, are biting enough. Right. That, or, I think this or is proof. Tough, yeah. Yeah. Or tough enough. Right. Uh, ultimately the fact the fact that Hollywood, who the movie is making fun of, said, Oh yeah, no, we get all these jokes. We're we're totally exactly. in on it. We're fine with it. Here, here are your Oscar nominations. Does that actually hurt the movie's case as far as it being the satire it it may be wants to be. I think so. I think that's why I, I may have used the phrase toothless at some point. Yeah. That's
0: maybe a little strong, but I think if okay, let's just put this in the bamboozled context. If it was really disruptive, mm-hmm. it would be ignored, forgotten, yes. never awarded.
1: Right. And we're not there. Right. We're not no, there. No, we're not. Which doesn't also, make it a bad film. Let me it be doesn't clear. make it a bad film. And also in fairness I don't know much of anything about Cord Jefferson and I'm not going to ascribe intent, but I will at least say it seems unlikely that he sat down and said, I'm going to make a movie, my first movie. It's going to get five Oscar nominations. If I just write it correctly, I know no, no one's suggesting that we're talking about the reception yes. end. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we got into the end of American fiction and that brings us to the end of our show, Josh.
0: If you want to keep in touch with us, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd. Adam is at film spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll asks you to choose one and only one Alfred Hitchcock film from the 1950s. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film spotting is listener supported. You can join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free, plus get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and
1: access to the entire film spotting archive. In the archives, you can find reviews of many, many Oscar nominated films, including Best Picture Nominees Past Lives, 925, Barbenheimer, 929, Killers of the Flower Moon, 942, Anatomy of a Fall with Spoilers, 943, The Holdovers, 946, Poor Things, 947. Just a couple of weeks ago on 950, we talked about Maestro. And yes, there was some zone of interest talk on our top 10 of 2023 roundtable. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can access all of those shows out in wide release. The the trailer we, we know and all love now <sighs> at the length of a feature film, Argyle, with two L's and a Y, starring Bryce Dallas Howard, Sam Rockwell, Henry Cavill, Samuel L. Jackson, Dua Lipa, Catherine O'Hara, Brian Cranston, Ariana DeBose, the names just keep on coming. Why aren't we reviewing the latest from Matthew Vaughn on next week's show, Josh? Does this mean they'll stop showing the trailer now? Maybe. Maybe. Instead, we're going to we're going to talk about Hitchcock. That's our response to Argyle's release. I'm sorry to all of those wonderful cast members. We're going to go back and look at some other pretty great ensembles. It's 50s Hitchcock. Sort of deathmatch, except we're going to vow, we're going to change the rules of the incinerator. Oh. Neither movie's going away. They both might go into the pantheon after this one. They're already there, or at least one of them is, but, you know, we're just making it up as we go along here on Film Executive decision. I didn't realize you had a key to the incinerator. My, my. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I do. So tune in for that next week, a Hitchcock double feature. And if you need to revisit these films, do your homework and come back and meet us here. Which we should point out, as Sam realized and told the two of us, currently
0: this may change as it rolls into February, but as we're recording, both films are available on Criterion Channel. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And
1: I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.